welcome to the Director's Wall podcast, formerly the M Night Shift. I'm your co-host, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly. All right. And we are continuing our way through the films of Francis Ford Coppola. Sorry it's taking so long. We're going to be better. (laughs) We'll be better, but you know. Life happened. But we're gonna we're gonna stay on top of it this time. Yes. Believe me. Uh, so we left off right at the beginning, <laughs> picking up where we left off. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola, fresh out of UCLA, he's working for Roger Corman, B movie king. Coppola is his jack of all trades. I think Corman actually called him his ace assistant. So it'd be his ace of space. His first thing he did for Corman was last week's episode, Battle Beyond the Sun, I think. Yeah. It's hard to remember because they don't go to the place that's in the title. No, but that, that's, yeah, I think yeah. it's Battle Beyond the Sun. So yeah, so he just, uh, he just re-edited this Russian movie and recorded American actors doing dialogue. And he uh, started out doing some nudie exploitation films. He moved on to rewriting some... Uh, Corman films, or rewriting one specifically that we definitely know he did a rewrite on the script, to The Haunted Palace from 1963, directed by Corman himself. Coppola, I'm not sure he actually gets a screenwriting credit he, on here. Yeah, because he did additional dialogue, and then he did he did preparation with the actors, whatever that means. Just, that means he... Um, made he, them do smiley face, lemon face, smiley <laughs> face, lemon face. Yeah, he... Uh, rehearsed lines with the actors before the uh before the camera started rolling so that that's what being a dialogue director means and we don't know which dialogue he added do you know did you know like what he did there's nothing i didn't figure that out there's nothing wholly remarkable about the, the dialogue that stands out as like ah that's the coppola touch i'm sure it was just like quick rewrites because they had to make a movie in four days and what's interesting about this movie before we get into the plot, is that it is actually based on a H.P. Lovecraft story, and because because Corman wanted to take a break from his Edgar Allan Poe stuff, but then American International is that is that who released it? Yeah, American International Pictures, AIP. So they were like, they decided at the last minute, like, no, we want it to be another Poe movie. He's like, well, but it's not an Edgar Allan Poe movie. And like, well, just open with an Edgar Allan Poe poem. And his fate's based on that. So his movie's based on an Edgar Allan Poe poem, not really, and the H.P. Lovecraft story, The Case of uh, Charles Dexter um, Ward. Ward. Yeah. Um, so can I, can I do the quick yeah. plot of this one, and then you can do the other one? And we're doing two movies in this episode. This episode, we're grouping together the two kind of Corman, uh, you know, like for hire uh, jobs he did, and then we'll go into his auteur uh, director stuff, uh, screenwriter stuff next episode. So The Haunted Palace, it's a little confusing, the movie, but it starts with Vincent Price, starts a long time ago. I'm not exactly sure the era, I can't quite tell. Oh, it, it was, like was um, 1765. Uh, and he, he plays this sort of like, let's say man-witch, I believe they're called warlocks, but I like <laughs> a man-witch. And he's doing some sort of dark, you know, art and magic in his big, uh, you know, castle, his big estate. And, of course, the small town that this is in does not take kindly to that. So, of course, they show up and 
they they're going to just kill him. Like we don't need you doing your satanic witch shit here. We're gonna kill you. But before he dies, he puts a, he puts a curse on the town. He's like, I'm gonna curses them, and that's where the beginning ends. Then we cut to many years later, many centuries, like a few centuries later. And what's confusing is it's Vincent Price again showing up, but not as the original character, but as like the great, 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 great nephew or whatever. And now it is 1765 in the movie. And and then he and and everybody in the town is also the same actors playing like the relatives. It's a little confusing because it's like they're playing. The people from a few from a long time ago, again, right? It's really again weird. like you know the then, old the old cantankerous drunk, then <laughs> hundreds of years later had a descendant who was also an old cantankerous drunk. So Vincent Price shows up with his wife and he's like, "I've inherited this palace. Hey, can anyone tell me anything about it?" And the town is like, "Get away from me! Like we don't talk about that place because the, supposedly the curse worked." And there's these like. All these deformed kind of mutant type people walking, like these ghoulish people walking around the town, and they blame the curse on that. That like people just keep being born with deformities in this town. But he's just like, well, okay, whatever. I'm gonna go to this town. Like, what's the worst it can be? And so he's there with his wife, and then weird things start to happen uh, there. And basically, basically, it just goes into this thing where the it's like Vincent Price from hundreds of years ago is able to like come back and possess modern day Vincent Price and live through him and do his black magic again and just try to like kind of regain his his throne as this like awesome warlock. And again the town is not happy about it and they show up with torches and in classic Vincent Price uh, movie they burn the place down. Which happens in a lot of Vincent Price movies. A lot of Vincent Price movies end with them just burning whatever house down or him like isn't that how House of Wax ends? Also, does it end with it burning to the ground? Oh, yeah. Like, a lot of bits of price movies end with, I don't know, just burn the place down. So that's the gist of the, of the plot, uh, basically. It's, it's, it's a good, it's this good era of Roger Corman where he's basically making the low-budget American version of a Hammer film. Yeah. It's just, like, really lavish, but on a low budget, where it's just, like, he, I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he just went to real castles and, and just dressed it up. But, like, these movies look great. They do look great. Low budget as they we definitely were. They are very the colors are great. They're always in like really beautiful widescreen, like beautiful sets. Um, yeah, I love these. Uh, Vince, I love Vincent Price, and I love these uh, Vincent Price Roger Corman movies, the good ones. <laughs> but because they are, yeah, they have a, a gothic feel, yes. a, a gothic setting to them. They are the American counterpart to the Hammer movies, yeah. uh, and. But Corman's going off of Poe, and Hammer was going off of like you know Bram Stoker mm-hmm. and Mary Shelley. Yeah. They're you know the the British authors, uh, and the sets they're obviously fake, but that just adds to the atmosphere. But me. they look good. Yeah, they still look good. The costumes are, I mean, they're pretty good. They're colorful. They're lavish, and it's shot in Technicolor, so everything's like rich and saturated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Vincent Price is there, you know, giving a an A plus performance as always. Always, no matter what garbage or great thing he's in, he is. He's one of the great actors, truly. I he's, really feel it to be. He's someone that knows what kind of movie he is in, and how he needs to present himself. Yeah, he needs to be like just stone cold straight mean 
like a pure evil villain like in the Witchfinder General or if he has to be like kind of over the top like sinister but over the top like he is in this movie or House of Wax mm -hmm. or Mask of the Red Death which is I think my favorite dare that's, I say that's my favorite Corman yes uh, dare I say that that is the Price best movie. Corman Price that's movie so good. So good. love it if you haven't seen Mask of the Red Death please watch Vincent Price's Roger Corman's Vincent Price's Mask of the Red Dead. It's, it's, the best, it's the best one. But yeah, these movies have a great atmosphere to them. Like they're really they're slow, so don't watch them at like midnight. But like they just they, they work, even though they're slow. You really kind of get into the mood, and it really feels like reading Poe or H.P. Lovecraft or whatever. like it really has that great just sort of like I, I don't know. It's just like it's a nice. Uh, it's it's never it's never terrifying. I'm never like this movie isn't scary to me, but it has just like a good like you said gothic kind of just kind of creepy, but like very beautiful sort of uh, feel to it. Yeah, these movies they're spooky. They're spooky, not scary. Yeah. So you can watch them with someone that doesn't like horror movies, or you can watch them with uh, kids even. Yeah, there's nothing offensive in this movie. Yeah. Really at all. The yeah the yeah. monsters like. They're monstery and scary, but not not that scary. You know? Is this going to sound like a Michael Medved podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, oh. oh, the movie also features Lon Chaney Jr. and he is in the uh, he's sort of like I see like the caretaker of the house. Is that what you'd say he is? Like he yeah the he's the the surf. This yeah. is something that only happens in horror movies where. You inherit a house, or you buy a house, but there's a servant attached to the house. What's amazing about Lon Chain Jr. is that he still looks like the Wolfman to me. Like he, because he, like I think, like because it's like he is still and has will always be the most iconic Wolfman. That like I keep thinking in this movie that he's going to turn into a werewolf. He just looks like he, and like Lon Chain Jr. Also looks like somebody who probably spent half of his check on booze. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, he does. He looks like he likes alcohol, and he has that great uh, hair. His hair is amazing, and I think I always associate his hair with the Wolfman because he has that great kind of widow's peak, and like he's always had his hair his whole life. And he has also has Three Stooges body, where his body's shaped like the Three Stooges, where it's like kind of like <laughs> that full kind of like I don't like. Where it's not fat, and it's not muscular, but he has a lot of body. You know what I'm talking about? Where it just seems like it's just like one piece. Like there's torso and his leg, there's kind of one piece, and then he's got this amazing hair. And he's he's uh, he also is he helps sort of mastermind this uh, possession of Vincent Price. Like he's sort of behind helps make the bad things happen. Yeah, so he's just there because again in horror movies it's totally possible that there's a servant attached to the house that you just like can't get rid of. <laughs> they're there and they're sort of in charge of the house. Like, oh, you can't go in there. You want to go in this room with all the spooky stuff so you can be possessed. <laughs> um, it's a weird trope that only shows up in horror movies. There's a very great, beautiful, intense Vincent Price painting in this movie, that oh, also yeah. play, plays into the plot, and it's just a great portrait of him. And I really hope that when the movie was done, Vincent Price got that and hung it up over his own mantle, because it's just it's beautiful. And um, oh, and the Necronomicon is also featured in this movie, which is always very exciting when people talk about the Necronomicon. That was H.P. Lovecraft's go-to 
um, like MacGuffin, and like he just needed something that contained all the dark secrets of the past or whatever. Like, oh, it's in the Necronomicon. So that keeps that shows up in like almost every H.P. Lovecraft story. And then later in the Evil Dead movies, too much. Like, where it's even a character at a certain point that has eyes and a mouth and attacks Bruce Campbell. Yeah. Um, would you agree that the parts in the the tavern feel like those parts in Beauty and the Beast with Gaston? <laughs> Does it seem like they're about to break into a song? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it does. Well, like with, the way that people are just kind of like, oh, the, we got to go out in there. We got to go up to that house and, oh, we don't like this. Like, and the way they're dressed and the way they're drinking. Yeah, with the hair. lavish costumes yeah, and, the and the sets. Uh, yeah. yeah. And that's obviously everyone in the town. <laughs> Let's go to that one place and just hang out. In the, and I, I really wanted them to sing. I thought that would have been a great uh, touch. And then also in this movie is Elijah Cook Jr., who is, uh, you might recognize him from The Killing. He's like the weird little guy in The Killing. His wife kind of treats him like shit. Yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah. um, And he plays this very similar kind of cowardly, kind of nervous guy in this. He's just like a little, tiny, round-faced man. And he's very good. So uh, Roger Corman would shoot his movies quick and fast. He shot every movie. Well, not every movie, as we'll find out in a little bit. We shot them on a 15-day shooting schedule. So we'd get the script out to the actors, and Price would look it over. And Price and Corman, they would talk a lot about the characters uh, beforehand, which is why one of the reasons why Vincent Price is such a good actor, because he puts everything he's got into the role in any way he can. Yeah. And Coppola's job on this movie, aside from doing the rewrite, was as rehearsing with the actors. This is Coppola learning how to kind of be a filmmaker, I feel, like with the last episode. And what's interesting about this is that he, I feel like I see a lot from this movie and the Carmen movies in general in later on in Bram Stoker's Dracula. I feel Bram Stoker's Dracula is him doing these Corman movies in a way. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? I like it's definitely would. more expensive and fancier. No, but I it is like that agree. gothic, moody, like beautifully shot, like fun uh, kind of horror movie that's like that rides that fine line between like being kind of fun and crazy and being serious. Yeah, and the costumes and sets were very important to horror movies at this time because they were all period pieces. The costumes and sets are really important in Dracula and Graham Stoker's. Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. <laughs> uh, so I definitely see that influence, and and we'll talk about that when we get to it, but in his Dracula, Coppola tried to use as many practical effects, yes. like in-camera effects, as he could. So a lot of that stuff looks so good because it is actually, you know, quote-unquote real. It's a camera trick. Mm-hmm. And he learned from these... Uh, things in film school and then so he then after working on the haunted palace he went to make dementia 13 but he said he thought of the idea while he was in ireland while they were filming the haunted palace is that i believe it's while they were filming dementia 13 i believe it's while they were filming this movie if not this one then it was another movie (laughs) but they were in ireland there was some extra days left uh 
Coppola had the idea, said, hey, can I shoot this movie? And Corman said, well, he always says, yes. <laughs> so he shot that. And then the final thing he uh, Corm- Coppola did for Corman was help him out by directing a few days of the terror. But before we get there, let's pause for a second. So we will talk about Dementia 13 in the next episode. That's where we're just kind of skipping over. So even though we're going out of order chronologically, we just figured it makes sense to group these weird Corman hired jobs as one episode, and then we'll get into everything. And let's also talk about the wine we're drinking real quick yes. before we forget. Um, it's been so long since we did this, we forgot to do it at the beginning of the episode. Uh, I've been drinking this for the first few minutes here. It is very good. We're, we're doing the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Ivory Label Cabernet Sauvignon 2016. Uh, let me read to you what this what it says. Ooh. Dramatic style. Would you agree there's a dramatic style to this wine? Sure. Vibrant packaging and fruit forward. Definitely fruit mm. forward. This very nice fruity one. Smooth wines are the signatures of Francis Coppola Diamond Collection. Our Cabernet is highly concentrated with aromas of blackberries, cherries, and spice. Do you get that? Do you get the aromas of... Let's see. I get the fruity stuff. I don't really know what blackberries smell like, but I definitely get the cherry. That's an easy one. Spice. I don't know what spice, but sure. Um, The spice. (laughs) The spice. With flavors of plums, currants, Dried herbs and toasted oak. Delicious with steak tacos. That's very specific. It just would be delicious with a steak taco. I just feel like when I have a steak taco, that's usually lunchtime, and I'm not really drinking a bunch of wine at that point. And it's usually like a torchies or something where I'm far away from a beautiful bottle of red wine. <laughs> Prime rib, there you go. Or pasta, of course, with red sauce. There you go. What do you think? I think this one's good. I think it's better than I do the like this wine. wine. I um, I like the fruitier wines, mm-hmm. uh, especially if they have a funny animal on the cover. <laughs> what on would that the label? Uh, this does the, not. What's what's one that has a good like the kangaroo one? The kangaroo one, the little penguin. <laughs> what's um, the kangaroo one called? It's an Australian thing. Yellowtail. Yeah, that's a good like five dollar bottle of wine. Yes. Yeah. You know, would, would you say that the Coppola wines are some of the better, maybe the best celebrity-endorsed product of food you can get? Like, I've never had the Smokey yeah. Robinson frozen gumbo that I've seen in the store occasionally. <laughs> well, or you know what? No, I stand corrected. The Larry the Cable Guy potato chips are very choice. So Larry, this very is a good. thing? Yeah. So Where he, is this a thing? If you go to, if you live in Texas, if you go to a Specs, that's where you can find them. I don't know where you can outside of the great state of Texas, but like... It's it's he has like cheeseburger flavored, and they really do taste like a cheeseburger or like fried pickle. And then it's interesting. So it's like Larry the Cable Guy chips, by far the best thing he's ever done, like better than his comedy. This is maybe up there with Tomater, is the potato chips. But then on the back it says part of the proceeds go to the Getter Done Foundation, but without really an explanation of what that is. Is that just Larry the Cable Guy's vacation fun? Like, is that this like to finish doing things? What is it for? I don't know. Yeah, just to get like, like, gotta finish my garage, gotta get it done. Or does it help? I don't. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I'm sure it's for something very nice. But it is funny, the nebulous. Like, what is the get or done condition? But I've donated a lot to that. But 
So what I'm saying is that Frank's a couple of wine, as good if not better than a layer of the cable guy potato chips that you right. get. Um, and this is a very good one. I wonder if there'll be enough for us to have a different kind for every episode. I don't know. I hope so, but I feel like we might have to, to start repeat. You know. And if you're in the wonderful city of San Francisco, the Zo- I think it's it's I think it's just called Zoetrope it has a restaurant. In it, like an Italian restaurant where you can go and have a couple of wine and eat some good food. And uh, they have big posters in there of like all the couple of movies. And I want to say it's the actual Zoetrope offices, or there's one of them, and they turned it into a restaurant. I could be totally making this up. But when I was in San Francisco last, I went there and it was amazing. Um, all right, now that, done with that segue and on to the terror. The Terror. So do you want to describe the very confusing plot of The Terror? This movie did, that made very little sense to me. I had to read the Wikipedia <laughs> plot summary after I saw this movie. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense when you if you read the plot summary, like, oh, yeah, okay, like, that's a cool story. If you watch the movie, no idea. <laughs> That that's going on, or it's never clearly explained. So The Terror is a notorious Roger Corman film, if not like the movie you think of when you think of Roger Corman movies, in that they are kind of bad. <laughs> uh, and this one is pretty bad. It is bad. It's it, it, it's not terrible. He's made worse movies than The Terror, but The Terror is just kind of neither here nor there. It's definitely not scary. It's not exciting, but it's not quite boring either. Um, it definitely pales in comparison to The Haunted Palace, which I thought was a great movie and a great looking movie. This movie definitely looks cheaper and feels like it's even more... Like, you can tell that this one was shot in four days, whereas The Haunted Palace, it was hidden, that it was shot in four days. Yeah. You know? So this was... Uh, the Terror was the longest shoot Corman ever did. It lasted for... According to some sources, like months. Really? Yeah. Why? Because Corman... It looks so rushed. It looks rushed, and it, it was shot on sets of The Haunted Palace and The Raven. Okay. As the sets were being torn down. Roger Corman got Karloff, Boris Karloff, to star in the film. And he promised him... He paid him some money and then promised him $15,000 if the movie made a certain amount, which it did not. Uh, Corman ran out of money, so he had to stop production, go find more money. But then he did not have enough money to shoot the film Union. And he, being in the Union, I assume the Directors Guild, then couldn't direct the movie. So he got a bunch of young guys that were not in the director's guild <laughs> to direct the movies. And what's amazing is that like this movie, I think what is most famous for when I knew about it before I saw it is it is sort of like was a film school for these these directors who end up being great filmmakers. Yeah. So like the whole the whole the list of the people who helped kind of piece this movie together is very interesting. It was directed by officially Roger Corman, but also Francis Ford Coppola, Monty Hellman, Jack Hill, and Jack Nicholson, the star of the movie. All great people. And interesting, all people who went on to be very important filmmakers in the 70s. Yeah. Like you had, like Monty Hellman went on to do like the great westerns, um, Ride the Whirlwind. He did Cockfighter, Tulane Blacktop, Jack Nicholson, of course, don't need to explain who he is. 
and then Jack Hill, who in my book is the best exploitation filmmaker of the 70s who isn't Russ Meyer, is Jack Hill. He did all the great Pam Greer, Coffee, Black, Coffee uh, Foxy Brown, Big Dollhouse. He did Switchblade Sisters. He did the second Cheerleaders movie. I think it's Revenge of the Cheerleaders. Is that the second one? Uh, he's got something called The Swinging Cheerleaders. Swinging Cheerleaders, yeah. In 1974. And, and he did Spider Baby. It's like, like a lot of stuff with Sid Haig. And his movies like are so like so fun and like they're the best kind of exploitation where they don't make you feel bad. They're just like fun, good exploitation movies. So and then of course Francis Coppola. And it's just so interesting to like that, that Carmen was like, I mean, clearly did it to get around the unions and be like, Oh, these are these young guys out of college who want to help me make this thing. But it's just it's so exciting, the idea of like all right, Coppola, direct six days in this movie or two weeks. Like here, you get to work with actors and like here, like just like, see what it's like. You know, see what it's like to do that with like work with Boris Karloff. Yeah. So you know? some uh, like IMDb says next to uh, Francis Coppola's unofficial credit on here, uh, like three or four days. Which days? Who knows? There's which days? Who knows? Uh, Wikipedia and I think uh, a book I read said it was actually 11 days. So Corman sent him up to Big Sur with uh, Jack Nicholson and Sandra Knight. And a lot of the stuff he shot, I don't think ended up in the movie, or at least the scenes I read about didn't end up in the movie. Jack Nicholson, there was a scene where he was supposed to look at a stream uh, with a lot of fish in it and say something like, like, wow, that's, there's so many fish. But he refused to say the line because Nicholson learned from having worked with uh, Corman on like two or three other movies that what Corman would, is, was going to do was then cut away to a shot of a lake or a river with probably not a lot of fish in it. And then cut back to him saying, oh, like, that's so many fish. And then he looks like an idiot. <laughs> so he refused to say that line. There's a scene at the beginning where he uh, he's trying to rescue Sandra Knight, who's in a trance and is like starting to wander into the sea. And he goes in after her, and the huge wave—you can see it—it it slaps him in the face. It covers his like whole body. And Nicholson claims that like he almost drowned. And other people say like, ah, he was exaggerating. <laughs> It's really fun to see Jack Nick, a young Jack Nicholson in this movie. A, Jack Nic a young Jack Nicholson who definitely got better as an actor. <laughs> he's like, like they don't. He's definitely not used well here. And it's like this is the type of thing that he's interested in. He plays a Frenchman, which yeah. already is like troubling. Yeah, so let me uh, describe <laughs> the plot. So it takes place during the Napoleonic era. He's a French soldier uh, in Eastern Europe. I think, or possibly Central Europe. Anyway, he's uh, been separated from his division, and he is uh, lost, and he's rescued by this young woman named uh, Helene and taken to a tavern where there's a creepy old lady and her, like, manservant, and he wants to know, like, where's the, the girl that saved me? And she says, like, there's no girl. What are you talking about? Like, her name was Helene. And she says, this is Helene. And it's a hawk that she just keeps around. 
But then he keeps like seeing her off in the distance and he sees her in the castle. So he goes over to the castle and asks for a shelter and it's Boris Karloff's castle. So Karloff lets him stay there. Uh, Dick Miller, another Corman guy. Listed here is Richard Miller. Yes. Ooh la la. <laughs> he is uh, Karloff's major domo. That's what the plot says. I'm not. I think a major domo is just a valet or a footman. Yes. Yeah. I know that Zazu was uh, Mufasa's major domo in The Lion King. But Dick Miller is not a funny British bird, so I'm not sure what major domo means. Uh, so he's creeping around the castle. Creepy stuff uh, keeps happening. Doors lock on their own. He sees the woman, like, off wandering in the woods. And there's a big portrait of Helene. But it's not Helene. It's Ilsa, Boris Karloff's long-dead wife. And then the painting disappears. And we find out that Boris Karloff, after the death of Ilsa, then married a younger... Because then Boris Karloff isn't who he says he is. Okay, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it with plot twist. I'm not gonna try and like reveal the twist. So Boris Karloff is playing the Count or the Baron von whatever. Okay, he he came home one day and he saw his wife in bed with uh, this young guy named Eric, and he got so mad that he killed her, and now he thinks that her ghost is uh, coming back to haunt him, and her ghost keeps telling him to kill himself. That's the only way that he can be uh, absolved of his sin of murder. But he's like, but if I kill myself, that'll damn my soul to hell. But the ghost is like, you have to, it's the only way. <clears throat> you have to like flood the crypt, you know, the, the basement crypt near Big Sur. But then it turns out that the Baron is actually Eric, who killed the Count then, or killed the Baron after the Baron killed Ilsa. And he felt so guilty about killing the Baron that he became the Baron, both in body and in mind. And then that drove him insane. And that's why the Baron has not left the castle for 20 years, because if he did, then his mother, the creepy old lady, uh, who's also a witch or something, would recognize that that's her son who she's trying to kill by having a young woman, Helene, turn into a bird, maybe? <laughs> it's so confusing. There's a lot of Jack Nicholson punching at birds in this movie. It's, it, 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 the plot is so convoluted, and just like even Jack Nicholson said, like, I don't know what that movie's about. I don't understand. <laughs> Nobody does. And maybe it's because you had six different people direct it, or maybe it's because it took so long and it's kind of a patchwork. Uh, but it's like the movie's very confusing. I remember watching it. It's like it's not a long movie. Like a no. movie this short shouldn't be this confusing. It's an hour and twenty minutes, and all that plot twist stuff happens in like the yeah, last yeah, ten minutes, the very end. possibly even the last five minutes. This is that type of horror movie, the kind I don't like, where I like to call it the people walking around a big house and looking at things quietly moving. It's a lot of just like Jack Nicholson walking in a room and he walks in another room and then like Richard Miller's 
you know, hanging out in a room, and it's like it's kind of like, oh, I'm walking around here, and then maybe they walk around the grounds and something weird, and it never feels spooky, it never feels interesting, it's just kind of like walking around a house. And, you know, there's a much better Jack Nicholson walking around a big empty house movie. It's called The Shining, so you should watch that <laughs> one instead. I wonder if you thought of this when he made that movie, be like, ah, it's like the terror. I'm just walking around this big house, it's a secret. But that's a much better, that's a much more well-made walking around and looking at rooms, empty house movie. The other uh, day, I watched uh, Mars Attacks, yeah. which features two Jack Nicholsons. That's so good. And apparently, Jack Nicholson asked to play the second part. Like, he got the script. They're like, you know, pick whatever part you want. He's like, well, I want to be the president and this uh, Las Vegas real estate guy. And I have to assume, like, maybe he just had a flashback of, like, working with Corman. <laughs> like, okay, I'll I'll act in the movie, and I'll direct the movie. And, and, and Nicholson, like Coppola, kind of was hired at the time doing a bunch of stuff. He didn't just act. He wrote a bunch of scripts. He, uh, like, he worked on the Monkees movie, you know? Like, he was trying out a bunch of stuff. He's directed a bunch of things. Like, this isn't the only thing he helped direct. So he, in the 60s, was kind of trying out many different roles, and then ultimately kind of settled on just being one of the great, you know, actors of the 70s and, and beyond. The, the face he makes after he realizes he has kissed a corpse is, like, the best. That is the best part. That is the only good thing about this movie. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like, he's kissing a lady, and he has, like, this realization of, like, I kissed a freaking corpse. And he has this amazing, uh, confused slash horrified look on his face. It's just a taste of what's to come. And it's crazy to think with like him and Coppola, less than ten years after this, they're making like the great movies, like the great new Hollywood movies, like is what these people are gonna like offer us. But at the time in 1963, they're doing that. They're doing this crappy movie. Yes, and in seven years, uh, Coppola will have an Oscar. Like have an, like they'll all have Oscars. Like yeah. they'll all have Oscars like very soon. And all just instantly be considered like you are some of the greatest people making movies forever. This movie also had the problem of never having a copyright because they forgot to put, to put it on the credits of the movie. It's, it's all it takes, I guess, to have the thing not exist. It's just to forget to put it on. You, you so, just have to draw a C with, with a, a circle, circle around, around it. it. So, like, I'm confused. If I made a movie and made it like a big movie, and I don't put a copyright on the movie, even if there's like a contract signed and blah, 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 like it's not copyright. It's just like if they accidentally the forget to put the copyright on... Titanic. Yeah, Titanic. The Titanic is just free for anybody because it has to actually be on... You can't just say it's copyrighted. It has to actually be copyrighted. So they forgot to put the C with the circle on this movie, and so therefore there are like... No actual decent DVDs or Blu-rays of this movie no, at all. I watched this. Uh, it's just—it's like Night of the Living Dead, where it's just like any schmo on planet Earth can like really like you can put this movie out if you want tomorrow and sell it and make yeah. money off. Of Night of the Living Dead, another movie that went into public domain because of a, like a clerical error. Yeah, I started <laughs> to watch this on a DVD. Because we have two copies of Terra Vulcan video. Stop on by. Then, and it didn't look great. And I thought, like, well, this is just a shitty transfer. <laughs> it's also uh, streaming online. So I'll watch it online. And it'll be in glorious HD. Ooh, and it looked exactly the fucking same. <laughs> like, dull and washed out. What I don't understand is, like, when something is public domain, 
why still can't there be a good version of it? Like, why do we have to only get the crappy version of this movie? Why do we only have to get a crappy version of, uh, there's a Martin Lewis public domain movie, um, forget what, I think it's At War with the Army or something like that, and it's just like anyone can put it out, and it's never been good. Finally, Night of the Living Dead came out on fucking Criterion, so finally someone made like a decent, great DVD, because why not? Just because it's public domain doesn't mean that you can only have a crappy... No, it makes sense because it means like any creep just was able to put it out and try to make some money and sell it to like a Woolworths. Or there was a, a, a book, like an encyclopedia of horror movies I saw at Barnes & Noble but did not buy. I kind of regret not buying it. Uh, but it came with a free copy of Night of Living Dead. <laughs> <laughs> There's been so many DVDs of that movie. Like it's crazy. Like, it's crazy how many times Night of Living Dead showed up in either shitty, like, those 50 movie box sets that you can get, like, at, at, that you used to be able to get at Best Buy when you can buy physical media back in the day, uh, back in the glory days of the of the aughts. Early aughts. Yeah. But, uh, but you'd have, like, 50 movies, and, and most of them would be, like, a bunch of shit, and there would always be on those sets The Terror and Night of Living Dead, because people are like, well... Yeah, we can do those two movies, and those movies have like Jack Nicholson in it, and it's the most—it's the first real zombie movie. So yeah, let's put that in with all this other garbage. Usually, it was garbage made on video from like 2002, and then the two great these two great filmmakers' movies uh, in the box set. But because it's public domain, you'll see the terror like Night of the Living Dead in many movies on television, where a character's watching TV, or if it's in the theater, it's either Night of the Living Dead. Or the terror, uh, and the terror is actually fe- featured very prominently in the Peter Bogdanovich movie Targets. Yes. And if you haven't seen that movie, a lot of the plot of the movie is about screening the terror. It's about Bor- Boris Karloff showing up to a drive-in to present the premiere of the terror, and then there's a sniper killing a bunch of people. And it's it's Peter Bogdanovich's first you know real movie. And it's totally great. It's like a weird thriller. It's nothing like the later Bogdanovich stuff. No, this it, but it's, it's lots really... of footage of. That's how I saw footage of the terror was because you see a lot of Richard Miller running around <laughs> uh, on the drive-in screen. Yeah, I um I really like Targets and I recommend it. And that was the first place I saw the terror and a lot of the terror. And Bogdanovich, like Coppola and so many others, got his start. With Roger Corman, Corman said, "You can uh, make a movie, whatever you want. You just have to include <laughs> a lot of footage of the terror, <laughs> and you have to use Boris Karloff for two days, because Corman told Karloff he would pay him the fifteen thousand that he owed him for the terror if he made targets." But then shouldn't he be asking for two paychecks? He should, because like yes. that's two jobs. That's not how a job works. It doesn't work with like, well, you cleaned my garage. I owe you $500. But what if you like mowed my backyard and then I'll pay you that $500? That's exactly <laughs> like, what Roger oh, Corman should, did. Then he paid $1,000 because he did two jobs. Yeah. Well, you know, he was old. Boris Karloff maybe didn't need the money as much. Maybe he was fine. Maybe he was like – and the thing with the terror in Boris Karloff is like he's fine in this movie. But, like, can compare it to Vincent Price in Haunted Pals. Like, Vincent Price is, like, really given his all in the Haunted Pals, as he always did. Whereas Boris Karloff is just kind of, he's just kind of there. He's, he's kind of there. Like a the, sad old man. Yeah, his character and is a sad old uh, man who is afraid to leave his castle. But he's not really bringing it. I mean, he gives it what it needs, but there's not a lot of character there. And I don't think 
that Karloff and Corman spent a lot of time talking about the character the way that Vincent Price and Roger Corman did, but Vincent Price and Roger Corman were actually friends. So I imagine a lot of the time in pre-production when they talked about characters came from just them hanging out. Mm-hmm. Karloff is fine, but he, yeah, he's not, you know, he's not the full throttle A plus, uh, you know, uh, universal movie, universal monster movie Karloff. He's just kind of there. Jack Nicholson's okay. It's 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 amazing to watch his performance just because you're like, oh, like he became great. He became one of the greatest actors ever, and he started out just okay. I watched this movie as I watch so many movies now, uh, which is spread out over four days uh, <laughs> doing the dishes while my twins take a nap. <laughs> and so I am doing the dishes and putting the, the dishes away, so I wasn't uh, looking at the screen the whole time so i listened to it and the i listened to the you dialogue you didn't even sit through the movie i sat through this whole movie i had dishes you, to put away so i took the bullet for the team you didn't even you didn't even sit through i was I sat i was there this entire movie i was there man <laughs> you're about as president Polly jack nipperson was while making the movie so yeah i'll give you that <laughs> Anyway, you can hear Jack Nicholson is so like he memorized these lines and he's repeating them, but there's no real depth to his performance. And Sandra Knight as the uh, woman in the trance, who also was married to Jack Nicholson at the time. Oh, I did not that know that was his wife at the time. Yeah, I mean she's just required to be uh, either a ghost or in a trance or in peril. And she's fine at all of those. There's not a lot required in all of those. And then, yeah, a lot of the movies, just people walking around this big house or telling yeah. people, telling each other stories about the big house. And there's maybe one horror image in this when he kisses, well, when he kisses the corpse and then the hawk finally like pecks someone's eyes out, but then that person's face like melts into blood. It's ridiculous and it looks uh, shocking only in that it's in this really dull movie where nothing visually scary has happened. (laughs) So it just feels out of place. It's like the one horror image that Corman knew had to be in the movie so he could sell it as a a horror movie. Yeah, this movie, not, not so scary. Jack Nicholson, you know, three years later would be in the shooting and then he would be off and running and being a great actor. Being a lot of those biker movies, including uh, Easy Rider, and then uh, Five Easy Pieces in 1970, which is just a few years after this, which is like kind of set in stone that he's an actual good actor. Um, who knows if he just could be better in this, but just chose not to, because maybe he was just like, what's the point? I think this movie's directed by a bunch of people, including myself. What does this mean? Um, but he was very devoted to Roger Corman and helped him with lots of things. And then most notably was in uh, Little Shop of Horrors as the character who loves going to the dentist, uh, the character later played by Bill Murray in the musical version. Um, so these two movies, there's not really anything noticeably Coppola-esque about any part of it. This is just sort of him getting, like, kind of building a resume, like, right, while even still finishing film school for some of these Corman movies. And just sort of like surpassing his uh, fellow 
students and being like, look, I'm making movies. Look, I'm a, I'm a script uh, coach. Like, I'm I mean, acting coach. It's like, basically, it's, it's basically a, he, had a, he had an apprenticeship. Yeah. Like he learned, he learned the facts, learned the, uh, the skills in film school, and then he got to try them out, mm-hmm. you know, fumble, make mistakes, and if, like, oh, he screwed up a his shot. His name's not on it. His name's not know? on it. It probably didn't even get used. I think he's listed on his movie as an associate producer. Is yes. Right? For, for this one, he's yeah. credited as associate producer, which is also, whether that's true or not, that's a great thing to have Associate producer Jack Hill got credited as location director. Mm. I think... Coppola just... And writer, wasn't he also credited? Oh, no, Monty... He was the writer... So Jack Hill was the writer. Monty Hellman was location director. And so I think Corman just threw these guys... You're like, hey, man, this will look good on a resume. I hope you get your next movie made. And it worked because within a few years, you had had Spider-Baby, you had The Shooting, and then you had... uh, I mean, Coppola was getting right... Like, this very year, directing a movie, Dementia 13, and then three years later... Uh, you're a big boy now. Yeah. So and Roger Corman, very generous to all these young filmmakers, also helped Bogdanovich, like we said, Joe Dante, um, Jonathan Demi, Jonathan Demi. Uh, like he, like he just like helped start sort of like all like a lot of the film filmmakers that became the fun great filmmakers of the of the seventies, eighties, and nineties. All kind of like, and what's crazy is Roger Corman is still alive. He's still around. He's still alive, but he's still making movies. He's still making movies. Like uh, he's just, you know, he loved. It's like he is. He's like maybe one of the luckiest men, and maybe one of the most loved men in Hollywood, because like even though he's kind of definitely a shrewd businessman by like all the corners he cut to make things, and clearly made these movies just to make money. Like and then occasionally accidentally made him artistic. Yeah, accidentally he made the Mask of the Red (laughs) Death. Or uh, X Men with X Ray Eyes, which I think is an incredible movie, but uh, but just helped start all these people's careers. And yeah, just sort of it's nice to it's nice to be generous to these people and be like, sure, you're associate producer. Hey, direct eleven days on this. Like, get your get your yeah. footing, kid. Um, Come on, kid, let's do this. Um, you can see Roger Corman in he's in Silence of the Lambs and he's in Philadelphia. Jonathan Demi's movies. Uh, Demi had to make cameos. He's in Apollo 13. Yep. As yep. one of the. Oh, yeah, Ron Howard, another filmmaker yeah. he helped to uh, get started. Yeah, he is one of the suits uh, telling. At the beginning. At the beginning, yeah. asking, like, can, can't we do this for cheaper? We'll, wink, wink. We'll get more into that when we do our extensive Ron Howard podcast and we're done with a couple of podcasts. That would be interesting. Uh, but yeah, uh, and I, I think like this movie does like the terror and the haunted palace and the uh, the battle beyond the sun or whatever yep. it's called. Like they're different, very different movies, very different types of movies, but they all helped kind of form Coppola to get the confidence. I think to to go off on his own and make Dimension Thirteen, which we will do sooner than later uh and i'm excited i've never seen that movie that's another one that i've seen alongside the terror in like the five dollar bins i don't know why that one's another one that's like can be cheap but it's a movie that i always see also thrown in those like 100 movie dvd box sets but i've never watched it so i'm very excited to see and it's interesting that coppola's official like official like i'm a director movie is a horror movie 
because he didn't he hasn't made a lot of horror movies in his career but he made a few you have Twix you have Dracula Dracula some would say Godfather 3 a horror a horror film in its own way <laughs> but uh it's yeah it's interesting to start in horror uh I'm excited have you seen it I have. I've watched it several years ago on TCM. I haven't seen it since, and I don't remember much about it. So this will be a lot like a first viewing. Great. Well, I'm so excited. Well, thanks for listening. Is there anything else you want to say before we move on from this uh, Coppola as Apprentice uh, films? If you want to interact with us, we are on Twitter, uh, at Director's Wall. Uh, sometimes I actually uh, log on to that Twitter account, so I might interact back. <laughs> uh, we're the director's wall at Gmail. If you want to send us in comments or questions or anything. <laughs> if you are in Austin, Vulcan Video is open. Open for business. Yep. Come on in. We have all these movies from there. That's where we're getting them. Yep. We're, we're going through a couple movies because we have a Francis Ford Coppola section on our director's wall there. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this weird episode <laughs> where we talked about two weird, not really Coppola movies. <laughs> and we'll, we'll be we'll be less rusty next time because we won't wait four months between uh, episodes. Uh, hopefully it'll be like two weeks. We'll, we'll get more professional. <laughs> we've, all, we've already done one whole series and we're still here. So yeah. who knows? But right. it's great. And it's thanks for listening, and I'm excited to talk about Dementia 13. Yes, all right. So we will see you. We're still at the drive-in at this point <laughs> in Coppola's career. So we will see you at the drive-in. Hey! For Dementia 13. Goodbye.